Welcome to Feasting on Design. I'm your host, Jason Frostholm. This week on the podcast, I'm chatting with Maurice Cherry, host of Revision Path. Revision Path is an award-winning weekly showcase of black designers, developers, and digital creatives from all over the world. During this episode, we dive into how Revision Path was added to the Smithsonian Natural History Museum of African American History and Culture, the current events surrounding race, how the podcast highlights race in the design world, and so much more. You can listen to the latest episode here, wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Roasters Marketplace. Roasters Marketplace curates small batch specialty coffee from 29 different micro-roasters around the country. You can find them at roastersmarketplace.com or on social media. And use the code FEAST for free shipping on your first order. If you like the podcast and want to help support us, head over to patreon.com slash feastingondesign. Every dollar helps us cover hosting costs, upgrade equipment, and keep the podcast going. When you become a Feasting on Design patron, you'll get access to exciting Feasting on Design news before anyone else, plus stickers and t-shirts. So please help support the podcast by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash feasting on design. Maurice, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's been a while since we talked. I think it's been about three years now. Oh my god, <laughs> so much has yeah. so much has changed in three years. We can talk about all of it, yeah. but yeah, it's a lot has changed. Well, I mean, I feel like this past you know twenty twenty itself has been three years and then six months. Ain't, so. ain't that the truth? <laughs> no, I was in L.A. Um, in February, like for about half mm-hmm. of the month. I did a live show out there. I went to a conference out there, and like it feels uh-huh. like that was almost a year ago. Even though it was just in February, because I came back and that's when all of the news about the pandemic started and the quarantines and the lockdowns and everything. So it's been wild. And you get and you get to have the panic attack because you've been trapped on a plane for four hours. It's interesting because like so I was in L.A. at the time that they were mentioning that the coronavirus had hit L.A. Like there was an outbreak at LAX. Oh, really? And then at the convention that I was at, uh, people were sick there. I don't oh, know if geez. they were necessarily coronavirus sick because I didn't know about symptoms or whatever, but there were a lot of sick people sure. there. I think partially because it was February, the hotel that we were staying in was very cold. Um, we were like mm-hmm. on the first floor, so it was very chilly. But a lot of people were sick. Even on the plane ride back, people were wearing masks. And this was in like oh, mid-February. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, that's scary when you start seeing stuff like that. Yeah, I just I remember like after they announced it, feeling very awkward going into the bank wearing a mask. <laughs> it's like, this isn't normal. Right. <laughs> like, normally when people go into a bank wearing a mask, they're doing something right. wrong. It's an entirely different scenario. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're making a withdrawal just of a different kind. <laughs> yeah. I was putting money in. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, but in the three years since we've talked, you've you've been kind of busy. Especially with the podcast. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. How how did um, the thing with the Smithsonian come about? Yeah, that is a wild. Uh, I wouldn't even say it's a wild story. Let me not hype it up too much. It's actually a pretty mundane story. Um, so it took me about four years to actually have the podcast be a part of the museum. And when I mm-hmm. first set out to. I guess 
Okay, let's let's take it back. Let's go back to 2015 because that's where really the, the okay. story starts. Um, I'm attending a conference at Harvard University called Black in Design. It's the first time that they're mm-hmm. they're holding this conference. And while they're there, the theme of the conference is about space. And they start from the neighborhood and they go out to like the city, the re- the city, the state, the region. And there were mm-hmm. people that were there that were from the Smithsonian and they kept mentioning the museum a lot because uh, Phil Freelon, uh, rest in peace, who's one of the architects of the museum, was there giving a keynote. And mm-hmm. so there were, you know, curators there and, you know, they were making a lot of mention about the museum because at this point in time, I think the museum had just broken ground. And mm-hmm. so it hadn't even been built yet, certainly wasn't open to the public. And they were soliciting donations there. And so I talked to one of the curators and told them about what I was doing with Revision Path. At the time, I think I had just gotten to about a hundred episodes or close to that. Mm-hmm. And I was mentioning, you know, the show and everything. And, you know, the curator was impressed. And she's like, yeah, you know, here's my card. Send me an email. We'll talk about it. Fast forward two years <laughs> to 2017. And um, I go to the conference again. They hold the conference every other year. So I'm at the conference in 2017. I meet the same curator again. Um, and this time mm-hmm. she's with uh, a friend of hers who is also a friend of mine who I've had on the show. Her name is Michelle Washington. And we're mm-hmm. talking about the museum. And, you know, at this point in time, the museum is open to like great fanfare. A lot of people have went to see it. It's sold out every day. So it's a it's right. a known entity at this point. And so Michelle is talking about the podcast and I'm talking about the podcast. And at this point in time, we were up to about, I think we just crossed 200 episodes. And so Mm -hmm. I mentioned the podcast again and she's like, oh yeah, that's right. I remember, you know, send me your information and we'll take a look at it. And so I sent the information again. And in 2018 was when they finally, I think, started to really like consider it and take a look at it. So they Mm -hmm. took a look at the episodes that we had. And I think at this point we were up to close to... Close to like 240, like 230, 240, something like that in terms sure. of episodes. And they said, send us a list of the episodes. We'll go through those and we'll choose the ones that we think are basically like museum worthy or or mm-hmm. of some historical significance. So I send them the spreadsheet. Uh, they get back to me a couple of months later. It's a lot of back and forth. And then we they come up with 10 uh, episodes that they want to be in the museum. Sure. And uh, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is this is great. So now I have to prepare the files. It's no small. Yeah. So now I have to prepare the files, which essentially means like stripping out the ads. So there can only be just the interview portion. The files have to be in a certain, you know, file format. They have to be in a certain size. Go through and do all of that. Submit everything and basically just wait. So once I Mm -hmm. basically I think whenever you submit something uh, to donation or acquisition for a museum, the process is pretty slow. So I, yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. So what they had to do once I submitted it was then uh, go and obtain museum rights, which meant contacting each of the guests and getting their permission and letting them know that this was happening. So it know. wasn't until never thought about that. Yeah. Part. So it wasn't until about hmm, I want to say around June of 2019, maybe like April or June of 2019, that they mm-hmm. uh, finally got back to me with uh, a deed of gift and the deed of gift basically um, is stating that these are the episodes that you donated. This is how they'll be, you know, displayed or archived or what have you. And at that time we were right around episode 300. 
And I was looking at the episodes that they chose and two of the episodes just happened to be about uh, Black Panther. One of them was a roundtable mm-hmm. episode we did on the design of Black Panther that as a bonus episode. And our yeah. 300th episode coming up was going to be with Hannah Beekler, who is the Academy Award winning production designer for Black Panther. Right. And so I said, I know we're doing 10, but can I sneak in one more? Because we're about to do this episode <laughs> and I think it'll be really great. It'll sort of, you know, round out the submission and everything. Um, and also mm-hmm. by this time, you know, I had also visited the museum like a couple like uh, the summer of 2018. I had visited the museum. So I actually got a chance to experience it in person. And I remember from being in the gift shop how much Black Panther memorabilia they had in there. So I figured, OK, they mm-hmm. want to try to capitalize off of that. I understand that. So they uh, allowed me to submit episode 300 once we had it recorded and mastered and everything. And uh, they sent over a revised deed of gift, signed it off, and then it was part of the museum. Now, what I wanted to really make sure is sort of like the significance of it, because I know that the Smithsonian has lots of, you know, audio archives, et cetera. But what is the importance of this one? Is it like the first podcast? Is it the first black podcast? Is it the first podcast to this museum? And so we had to sort of Mm -hmm. get all those things checked by their Department of Internal Affairs. And once we got that checked and they verified that it was the first podcast to be in the Smithsonian as part of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, I uh, wrote a press release. Well, actually, I didn't write the press Mm -hmm. release. We hired a PR agency, but we hired a PR agency to write the press release And we put it out there. And in July of 2019, the news kind of hit everywhere that Revision Path was in the Smithsonian. Yeah. I I mean, I remember seeing it and just being kind of awed and in shock. And I knew that it was an important podcast, but it's... You know, was that important? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't want to... It's just... And it's, I think it's partly because I do a podcast. So I just go, well, it's just a podcast. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, you know, it's a side project. It's, and it's a lot of work and it, you know, there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah. But I think even, even being a podcaster, I still look at podcasts as, oh, it's just a podcast. Right. And, you know, honestly, (laughs) I think that, you know, that abstraction from what, you know, it really is in its core is kind of why. Um, I know a lot of people were sort of shocked by the announcement because even mm-hmm. when you break down like a podcast, I mean, what it is, is an audio recording of some sort. I remember yeah. from going to the museum uh, in the summer of 2018, they actually had these kiosks where you could like put on headphones, press a button and hear some audio, like hear someone talking or hear a song or something like that. They actually have a booth mm-hmm. where you can record yourself talking like they'll give you uh question prompts like an interview and you can respond and then they have those kind of going on a loop inside the museum so lots of museums have that level of kind of multimedia already there um i think you know when a lot of people think of museums it's just like statues and paintings and stuff like that but um exhibit designers use all form of media when it comes to trying to like tell a story for a particular exhibit or something like that so um at the at the the end of the day, even though it is a podcast, like these are audio recordings of designers of the time talking about their craft, which is pretty, mm-hmm. you know, it's pretty pretty important. I mean, you could say NPR StoryCorps is just a podcast, which it is, yeah. but it's also this sort of oral history 
of people's lives throughout the years. Yeah. Now, well, since you mentioned NPR StoryCorps, since it gets put, since your podcast gets put in the Smithsonian, does it also automatically get put in Library of Congress that way too? I don't know. That's a good question. I should find that out. <laughs> you should probably check. Yeah, because I know that Romans, uh, Romans pod, oh Roman Mars, ninety nine percent invisible. I know his podcast is <laughs> in the Library of Congress. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's also in there. I think it might just be the Smithsonian. Okay. Yeah. That's. I mean, that's still a huge accomplishment, though. That's you know, that shows the cultural significance that you're having on the conversation around race and and you know, the, the black experience of design. Yeah. I mean, I try to make sure, you know, with, with every episode that I'm doing that I focus, well, just to kind of take it back. I try not to necessarily focus specifically on race because I'm black. The guest is black. Like it's kind of a given, Uh, but but what we discuss (laughs) in the context of that uh, familiarity, I think is something that a lot of people don't get from a, design podcast so like yes we're talking about the work but we're also talking about cultural significance and like how you might feel in the workplace and uh, Mm. even as I listen back through the archives like I think about what's happened in the world from 2013 to 2020 and depending on the significance of the story like it's made its way into the podcast like some of our Mm. most impactful episodes are the ones right around uh, November 2016 uh, when Trump was elected uh, we did a oh, we yeah, did a yeah we did a bonus episode uh, that was really good and then we also talked to a uh, expat that's currently in Amsterdam who was considering moving back to the states prior to the election and now he's like oh I don't know um, so like we're able to have these kinds of discussions which at the time you know were not really heard anywhere I think the focus yeah. was largely just on how do Americans feel about this. Um, and specifically, I think mostly white Americans, how do they feel about it? And so also being able to have, you know, Ashley Axios, who was the former creative director for the Obama White House, talk mm-hmm. about her work and even just, you know, talking to people in campaigns. We've, you know, been fortunate to talk to folks from uh, Hillary's campaign. We've had two people, well, mm-hmm. actually three people uh, on from Hillary's campaign, uh, Mina Markham, Ida Walter Michael and Cher Biggers. And then we just recently, a couple of months ago, had uh, Samuel Adaramola, who was on Bernie Sanders' campaign, on the show. Okay. So even as I look back through the years, I can see like, okay, this significant thing happened in the world. We talked about it. Like even now, I'd say maybe the last five to ten episodes, the pandemic has worked Mm. its way into every episode, like in some point. Well, I mean, how can it not? (laughs) At this point, it's... It's taken over the entire world. It's it's kind of hard to avoid it. I mean, even you and I started talking about it. You know, first thing we started talking about was the pandemic. Yeah. So it's and, you know, but with Trump getting elected, it's it certainly has opened the floodgates for not good things around the world as we're seeing now. That's sh- and it's 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 change. I think it's changing the conversation. And I think. I mean, I don't I don't think the unrest that's going on is good, but I I think well, that's not the right way to phrase it. Nobody wants to see rioting or people getting hurt or anything like that, Mm -hmm. but it's good that we are having the conversation again. 
Well, I, and the conversation that never should have stopped. Right. Well, I think what's happening uh, in this unique period of time is that uh, we are in this this. Uh, it's almost like we're in a crucible of sorts. I mean, the that's a good description. The the cries of the unheard of the people that are out in the streets, you know, protesting, etc. These are cries that have went on for years, decades, centuries that have largely mm-hmm. been unheard. Um, it's only at this time I feel like they're being noticed because, and to be you know completely honest, I don't want to get super political, but like there's no distraction for, away from it. There's no live sports. No. There's no concerts. There's no movies. You know, no live television. You can sort of go out. You can't really travel. You know, countries have closed yeah. off their borders. Like you have to focus on what's happening right now because, of course, people have been watching the news already just to find out mm-hmm. about COVID-19 and what, you know, how it was progressing in terms of a vaccine and, and the number of deaths and things of that nature. And now the media cycle has largely shifted over to talking about these protests. You can't turn away from it. It's right yeah. there in your face. You have to confront it. No. And that, uh, and I think that's the good that's coming from it is that you do have to confront it. And since there are no distractions, it's, it's getting the spotlight that needs to be put on it as far as to make change. And it, it's, it's disheartening to see, I'll get political on it. It's disheartening to see an administration. So it's beyond apathetic. It's so against change. And so, well, they, no, they want change. They want change to go backwards and yeah. to create divisiveness yeah. and, and that, that derision in society. And, and that's, that's terrifying to me. Yeah, I mean, and I can't imagine what it's, it's like it's self-serving for you being a black person. Yeah. Well, it's, it's self-serving. There is a a clear lack of empathy or emotion. I mean, over a hundred thousand yeah. Americans have died because of this disease, yeah. and there have been no types of like real acknowledgments or no. period of public mourning uh, to even you know process that. Like that's a large amount of grief. And especially now with states talking about reopening, like we have to get the economy back. Like it's, I think what this time has shown is that the, uh, (laughs) the construct of the American dream as we've known it up to this point is largely a house of cards. Um, Oh, very much so. Even being out of, even with some industries or businesses being out of work just for a couple of weeks, they're going bankrupt. They're collapsing. Supply chain is completely messed up. Like, it's amazing mm. how many things have changed just in this period of time. And granted, what's happening with these uh, with these protests is sort of divorced from that. I mm. think what it's showing is that even with all of this that's happening, black people are still being killed by police without impunity in this country. Yeah. And it's like people are out there protesting, risking their lives because of the pandemic so they can... It's it's a very it's hard to articulate in a way. Um, oh, I yeah, I, you saw me trying to yeah, do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's just a very difficult time overall because there's so much to process. I think the one thing mm-hmm. to process, you know, like we we're talking about before, is just 
being in this pandemic and then two with all of the the protests and then the the insistence on returning to a level of normalcy that no longer exists um yeah i mean i think regardless of if we have a vaccine within the next six months or the next six years like this is an inflection point for a lot of things mm-hmm. in this country that, that are really a lot of things in this world that are going to change travel, workplaces, restaurants, et cetera. Like, oh, yeah. All of these I things mean, the are whole, changing. The whole structure of how we operate in normal day to day life has got to change because of this. Yeah. It's scary. When, when it comes down to, you know, the, situation with the police and and what's going on with that though it, it what what terrifies me is you would think after the events that happened with Brianna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and and James Floyd that the George police Floyd. would be on their best behavior George Floyd I don't know why I just said that um I know the name I was looking at something else um but you would think that the police would be on their best behavior at this point and it seems to be the opposite. I mean, you're in Atlanta. We just had, um, oh my gosh, I just blanked on his name. Rashad. Rashad what's his uh, name? Brooks. Brooks. Thank you. Um, you know, he gets shot because he's sleeping in his car, essentially. Yeah. You know, he's, or he's sleeping it off in his car, depending on, you know, what the reports are saying. That, that's not like, that's not a, that should never have happened. Yeah. It's like, you know, at the worst, if he was actually drunk and impaired, yeah, you give him the DUI, you put him overnight in the drunk tank. But he wasn't even driving. That, he was parked in his yeah, car. He was parked. And I, I mean, I do understand that there's laws that, you know, even if because Alabama's got that same law where, you know, if you're parked in the car and you, you know, are still drunk, doesn't matter. You get a DUI. I get that. I, you know. But he wasn't driving. He was parked. So in a way, he was acting somewhat responsibly in that. And and they still shoot him and they still kill him. Yeah. And then, you know, you see the, you know, we've had, was it five or six people now around the country that have been found hanged? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what? One, you might be able to chalk up to a suicide. I don't think five people or six people are all going to choose to commit suicide the exact same way within the span of a week. You know, it's it's coming to a head that isn't I don't at least in my lifetime it's nothing we've seen. I don't I wasn't around for the civil rights protests and the civil rights fight in the sixties. So I, I can't say what it was like that, but from, from what I know of history, it feels like it's coming to that head again where something's got to break. Yeah, I think so. And I, I, I think the riots are a sign of that breaking and it's that frustration of being unheard and not listened to. And I, I think part of the other side of the riots, and this is again, getting political and I don't know if you've noticed it, but whenever I see like the footage, it's, it's white people who are doing most of the fighting and yeah. 
stuff like that. Yeah, and that's the, the Wendy's that burned down here, which actually is not even that far from where I live. Uh, really? Yeah. Uh, a white woman set that fire. It's on, it's on tape. That's, that's what, that's what I saw is I, I didn't see. I just saw that uh, this morning when I was looking at the news, I saw that there were reports that a white woman did it. So, and it didn't surprise me one bit because really you had, yeah, no, because I, I think I've become so accustomed to with this administration, people doing the wrong thing Mm. just in general. Yeah. And and it's, it's, it's had a numbing effect and that it shouldn't. But I think that's, I think that's what this administration's goal is, is to, if you just keep acting horribly, people will become numb to how horribly you act and you'll be able to get away with it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's that saying that the, the fish rots from the head or something like that. Yeah. I I certainly think that the current occupant in the Oval Office, his behavior enables and emboldens a lot of what we're seeing now. Um, Oh, completely. Because they've, I mean, we've even heard as much on some news reports, people are like, well, president's not wearing a mask. I'm not wearing a mask. You know, people are taking their behavioral cues from what, you know, the person at the top is doing. So, Mm -hmm. well, I mean, that's what people, it's leadership. It's that's where that whole expression comes. It's from the head down. It's people see. And if whoever's in charge isn't doing it, then why should we do it? Yeah. It's scary. So, there's no way to do a subtle shift. I was, was going to say, and I know we're, you know, we're still recording, but like, if you wanted to cut all this out and just get to more <laughs> designery stuff, I'm totally okay with oh, that. Well, like it's, it's your show, but <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think it's important to leave it in, but we'll, we'll just do a hard shift. How about all that? Right, yeah, that works. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's, let's get back to more fun topics and talk about design and, <laughs> Because because there is no good way to transition from that. And it's it. But. I I think the state of racial equity and equality and design is, you know, something that still needs to be addressed, too. So let let's talk about that a little bit. And, you know, I think. And and I'll let you expand on this, but I think what you've been doing um with the podcast and and continue to do with the podcast has really highlighted and brought to light how much I'm trying to find the right wording for this, how much race still plays a factor in design in design of things. Mm -hmm. Um, How, uh, how have you approached it? How, when you're having these conversations, how do you, cause you mentioned, you know, you're black, your guest is black, so it's not necessarily coming up. But there are there are times where it is a relevant subject. Yeah. I, in the conversation. Yeah, and I mean, it, I, I think it comes up in, I think because both me and my guests are black, it's sort of just an implicit mm-hmm. thing. So it, it sure. comes up in, in various ways, whether we're talking about how we're treated in the workplace, whether we're talking about employee resource groups or you know, mm-hmm. community in terms of how they might have fell into design or discovered design or had support for design. So it sort of weaves into a number of different 
topics and factors in general. Uh, I try not to explicitly point it out. I think like early on in the show, I did do that. Like I would ask people like, what are your thoughts on diversity and inclusion or something like that? When, (laughs) you know, the reality is like, we're all, you know, just by proxy of being black people in this industry have, we each have our own unique experiences that have happened or have not happened Mm -hmm. um, because of our race. And it's unfortunate that those things are still kind of perpetuated within the industry. Uh, Yeah. And yeah, just in terms of how I approach it, we honestly, we'll just, we go into it. We'll talk about it. Um, I'm trying to think of, of an example that was particularly, uh, I'll give you an example. So I've been fortunate to have some really well-known prominent black designers on the show, such as Gail Anderson, uh, Cheryl mm-hmm. D. Miller, Eddie Opara, et cetera. Um, Bobby Martin from Champions. I've been fortunate to really have them on the show and talk about the work that they do. And usually I will ask them, you know, are you aware of kind of the space that you occupy being like one of the only at the top? Like, do you know, are you aware of like what that feels like? Do you feel a need to kind of reach back and help out the community? Um, and I don't know if that's a question maybe that Paula Sher gets asked <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Like, I, and not to single out Paula, but like, I don't know if that's a question. Well, I, that, think she, I think she does, but she gets asked about it from a woman's standpoint. Though. Yeah. Because I've heard her be asked about that, but that's a different perspective again. Yeah. So. Like, I don't know if, if that's, uh, you know, because of where, because of the space that they occupy being one of the few at the top or, or of mm. known prestige, I would say, do they feel a need or an obligation to kind of reach back out and help out others like that are up and coming in that respect? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, mostly the answer is yes. Uh, sometimes the answer has been no. And that's fair. Really? Yeah. I mean, that's fair. Um, it's, it's just being able to have the space to ask the question, I think is important. Mm-hmm. So I really try to make sure when I have the guests on that I'm just creating a comfortable space for them to talk. Um, some people do come in and I can tell that they're like super rehearsed and they want to know, mm-hmm. I want they want to know the questions beforehand so they can have answers. And I'm like, yeah, I don't do that. We'll just go where the conversation yeah, I goes. <laughs> I try to just go where the conversation goes. Cause I feel like it just becomes more organic that way. I get, mm-hmm. uh, I just get a better read of the guest if I kind of keep them on their toes a little bit. Uh, but generally, yeah. I mean, my interviews are pretty laid back and conversational. Like I said, I try to make the space for them to be comfortable. I'm not asking any like gotcha questions or anything. Um, and <laughs> no. if, and if I do have a question that might come off as controversial, I will always ask them before we start recording if they want to answer it. Um, sure. Most of the time they do. Sometimes I'll answer the question, but it just doesn't make it into the show. So, you know, it depends. Yeah. No, I, 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 I kind of do the same thing. I, I normally, I, I, I've, I've had you on the podcast before, so I didn't run through it, but I normally tell people, you know, don't edit yourself, say whatever you want. If you get to a point where you say something that comes out and you're not comfortable with it, just let me know and I can cut it out. Yeah. And you know, that I, I think having an open, honest conversation is much more, at least for me, and I don't know if you feel this way, it's much more rewarding for me Mm -hmm. um, to have that type of conversation than to do an interview where I've got 10 set questions and, you know, I'm trying to get through them. Um, And and then part of that is for me with when I do that, it's if I have 10 set questions, 
I'm going to come off so stiff and robotic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I know I've got 10 set questions and I'm trying to hit them and I'm not going to be doing a great job of actively listening. Right. And oftentimes, you know, maybe the guest doesn't fall into the scope of those 10 questions, like what they have to talk about right. might not even work with that, that framework. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's very true. Like, I mean, when I talked to, I, I don't know what your process is, but when I talk to guests, I, I do take notes like ahead of time of ideas that I want to talk about that are, I know, significant to them. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I do it per guest. I don't do it in a general sense. So, you know, I, I have an idea of what I'd like to get from the conversation, but I'm always open to learning more and going down different routes. And if I don't get to something on my notepad, I don't feel bad about that. Yeah. I will usually ask the guests beforehand, like when they book the interview, if, you know, similar mm-hmm. to what you did with me, I'll ask them if there's a topic or topics that they want to discuss. I'll usually yeah. ask that question twice because sometimes there's just mm-hmm. a bit of time between booking and recording. So I will ask sure. them again and then, you know, as I'm doing my research on them, I'll have bullet points of things I may want to discuss, but I honestly will just try to go where the conversation goes. Like the, the focus of yeah. the focus of the interview for me is to provide a platform for the guests. So I let them talk about what they want to talk about, because at the end of the day, it's about them. It's not about me. So when people are mm-hmm. listening, um, they're able to kind of get a good sense of who the guest is and what they're about. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's, that's how I try to approach things as well. It's the show's not about me. The show's about my guests. So, so that being said, since you're the guest, let's talk a little bit more about you. Sure. (laughs) Um, so, you know, with, with everything that's going on, you've had some transitions, uh, career wise and you're, you're kind of trying to find a new path. What does that look like for you and what, how are you processing all of that? That's a good question. You know, I, I've told this to a couple of people privately, but you know, this is the first time in my career that I felt like I could take a break without consequence. Um, when I was younger, particularly in my twenties, uh, (laughs) when I got laid off from a job or if I quit a job or if I got fired from a job, I had to find something else quick. Like I'd go to monster.com. I would look at a job listing and I would do a one-to-one comparison of what the company needs and what I can provide and hope that there's a match. Um, So Mm -hmm. it was often me looking for work out of necessity or really largely looking for work out of desperation. Sure. Uh, This is the first. Yeah. And so this is the first time that I can actually take a reprieve and not worry Oh, are my bills going to be paid? Oh, do I, am I going to have to do this? I'm going to have to do that. I can, I don't want to use the term relax, but I can kind of relax for a while. Mm. You know, I, I had a bit of a guilty feeling doing that just based off of, you know, again, everything that's happening in the world. Like, is this a time for me to not be doing anything? It feels like it should be a time for me to be doing all the things. Uh, Yeah. But the reality is that since the, you know, the pandemic really came on, I have been working like full steam ahead while I was still at glitch and while Mm. the layoff happened and while I don't have any, you know, bad feelings about it, you know, um, it did sort of take a big break in my, in my life, you know, like you're working, you're working, you're working. Now you're not working. 
And I know this from talking with people who have like went on sabbaticals and things like that. They've told me that, you know, there's always a period uh, right after that when you stop working where you'll feel the shift from work to non-work. And mm-hmm. I feel like it's happened to me this week because usually like I'd start work pretty early in the morning around 7 a.m. I'd start mm-hmm. work, be done by four. Like I had strict I had a strict demarcation in my day between work and non-work. Sure. This is probably the. F- I mean, that's smart yeah. when you work remote, though. But to do that, yeah. But this is probably the first week where I like I slept in. I I felt <laughs> like okay, I can get up and and like make a few calls and do some things. I didn't feel like my day was super structured like it used to, and I think it's mm. that level of 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 not unstructured. I guess that's not a word. The level of not having that structure is is what's giving me the freedom now to actually think and plan and and really mm. kind of consider carefully what my next step is going to be because you know again like I said when I was in my 20s I'm just looking to try to find where can I get my next paycheck I'm not sure. taking any consideration into what the what the workplace does what the company does what kind of work you know environment they have or anything like that now these are all considerations that I really take into play like what's your diversity and inclusion programs like what does your leadership board look like? What's your mission? Like, you know, how do you give back to the community? Like those things are super important to me. I want to be able to say that I'm proud to work for a company that has those kinds of values and has those sorts of things and play for them. Um, as opposed mm-hmm. to just, you know, getting a paycheck. I mean, getting a paycheck is sure. great, but I yeah. would, I would <laughs> like to feel like there's some purpose to the work as well. Yeah. I, 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 I think that's a good way to approach things. If you have the luxury to do that, that's, you know, and, and I'm glad to hear that you do have the luxury to do that. You know, aside from the things that you just mentioned there, what are what are some things that are really or or even if it's things that you did mention, what are what are they and why are they um, important to you? Um. Oh, wait, I don't know if I understand it. Could you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I realized when it came out of my mouth, I was like, that made no sense. <laughs> like, what are the things when, that I'm thinking when, about or considering? Yeah, what are the things you're thinking about and, and why are they important to you? Well, I mean, I I do want to work for a company that, um, you know, honestly is stable. I think we all do. You know, start yeah. startups are great. Helping someone else build their idea don't have a problem with that. But like, I know from running my own studio that it's shaky, you know, yeah. startups are very shaky regardless of, you know, if they've got a level of VC funding or anything, because something like a pandemic could come along and then all of a yeah. sudden you're out of work. Uh, <laughs> uh, but stable in yeah. the fact that they've got, you know, recurring revenue, they have a business plan. They've got a track record of success that they've built off of. Like that's important. Of course, diversity mm-hmm. and inclusion is important, particularly in the leadership team. I sure. would really like to be able to see that they've got people of color in leadership. Really, they've got black people in leadership because, I mean, I mm-hmm. I think that's very important uh, just in terms of the dynamics of how the business itself is run, uh, particularly sure. if it's a, a fairly large or stable company. Like you want to be able to see how the chain of command sort of works. Um also, what's important is just how they treat their employees. You know, are, mm. do they treat them like people or are they like shaping human capital? As one place that I worked at used to say, 
it's not glitch. It was AT&T. But like, <laughs> you know, it's, do they see you as a person or do they see you as just a cog in the machine? You know, that kind of thing is, is really important. What does work-life balance look like? Do you have yeah. the the space to actually be a functioning adult in the world or are you just expected to work between sleeping? So those kinds of things are really important to me uh, because I've got my own stuff that I do. I have revision mm-hmm. path. I have my other projects. Uh, one thing that I think working at Glitch for the past two and a half years has taught me is that I, I my self-worth is not tied up in my job title or the work that I do mm-hmm. for a company. Like that's not where my self-worth is. My that's self-worth. Good. That's healthy. I, well, I think my self-worth is in the, the projects that I do outside of work and the lives I'm able to touch and the people I'm able to affect. Like that's where my self-worth comes from. So I can easily like cut it off. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I can work until, Oh, it's four o'clock. All right. Cut print, go to the next thing. Uh it's, it's simple for me to do that. So uh, I want to make sure that a company, a company has that kind of work-life balance that they don't expect you to work around the clock, eat, sleep and breathe sure. the work that you do. You know, I know there's a lot of, you know, things going around about, oh, we want to make sure that it's it's a family. It's like a family. I'm like, no, you're my boss. I have a family. Yeah. They li- I, I, you know? I'm always, <laughs> whenever I hear that, I'm always very bothered by that statement. I'm like, mm, no, I have a family. Yeah. I'm like, we can be cool. And and I often find that to be endemic of startups, to be completely honest. Like, um, yeah. like they want you to be a, a family and we're doing the game. I'm like, no, we, we're, we're coworkers. Like, and that's not, yeah. to, and that's not to be emotionally distant or anything, but it's also, no. again, that thing about, where are you getting your worth from? You know, like I'm not wrapping up my worth as a person in X job title at a particular company. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Roasters Marketplace curates small batch specialty coffee from 29 different micro roasters from around the country. Not only can you shop an amazing selection of single origin beans, but you can find out the story behind each craftsman. They even have their own podcast so you can meet your coffee roaster. RoastersMarketplace.com is not your typical coffee website. You can shop by origin, roast level, processing method, and even flavor notes. Whether you're looking for a delicious light roast with hints of blueberry and almonds, or a bold dark roast with notes of dark chocolate and molasses, Roasters Marketplace can help you on the quest to find the perfect cup. Become a Roasters Marketplace member and get free shipping on every order, including a great selection of subscriptions. You can find them at RoastersMarketplace.com or on social media. Use the code FEAST for free shipping on your first order. They are constantly running incredible specials on bundle packs of design assets and fonts for up to 99% off the regular price. Their products are some of the best out there. And their customer service is top-notch. If you head over to feastingondesign.com slash design cuts, you can check out their latest bundle pack at an exceptional discount and help support the podcast. If you haven't tried Webflow yet, when building a website, what are you waiting for? Webflow is a great no-code alternative to WordPress. You get so much more control over the design of the site compared to your traditional templated no-code sites like Squarespace or Wix. Give it a shot on your next site. Visit feastingondesign.com slash Webflow to sign up for your free trial today. Yeah, no, I, I'm the same way as... I I went um, and interviewed with one place 
Oh, what was this? Probably December. And they kept harping on, you know, we're like a family, you know, and they they were talking about all the hours that they put in and stuff like that. Like it was a badge of honor. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, no, that's not a bad, that's a sign of bad management. If you're having to put in 60 hours a week, you know, that's your company's not running right. If you're having to do that. And if you're expecting people to do that, and if you're expecting people to work to two, 3 AM, something's not right. I mean, I realize there sometimes are, um, emergency projects that come up and you have to fix something or things like that where you may have to work late, but when you're having to pull an all nighter, mm, that's college. That's not a job. Yeah. I can't do the all nighters anymore. (laughs) No, I can't either. Can't do it. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I'm ready for bed by 11. Right. Cause I mean, (laughs) the thing is the work's always going to be there. Work, the work yeah. is always going to be there. There's no, mm-hmm. you're not getting a prize at the end of the day. Well, I don't know. Maybe some companies will, but when you look back at the work that you've done at a place, I don't think anyone's really going to be like, Oh, well, they stayed, they worked and did all this time. They're more concerned about kind of the end result. I mean, I think it's yep. you know important to be a good team player, have good work ethic and all that sort of stuff. But like, oh, if you're running so. yourself ragged, just trying to get, you know, the minimum done, that's, that's a yeah. problem. And I don't want to work for a place that kind of treats their employees like that, that just sees them as like an expendable resource. Where they look at them like cattle. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No. What is, so what, speaking of that, what is your thoughts on companies? Cause a lot of startups and a lot of tech companies have the, like where they provide lunch every day and you know, they, you know, they've got places where you can go take a nap or things like that. What is your thoughts on that? I would love a place I could go take a nap. That would be great. I think more adults need naps. Like, I well, I I, I do agree with that. <laughs> My, <laughs> more adults definitely need naps. Uh, as and especially as a parent, I definitely understand that. Yeah, like when you're, I mean, when kids are cranky, you know, they take a nap. I mean, a good nap can change your whole day. So mm-hmm. I'm I am pro nap in the workplace. Uh. You know, sometimes those perks, you know, those kinds of perks can be used as filters too. Uh, that's, that's, that's always my thought on that. It's like, yeah, you're putting a lot of icing on the cake. Yeah. Like I've had, I've had, you know, startups that have approached me that are trying to wow me with beer Fridays and foosball tables. Like I don't, <laughs> I'm too old for that. I don't yeah. want to do that. I'm, I'm done in college. I don't want to do that. I'll be 40 next year. I don't want to do that. That's crazy. <laughs> Beer? What? Anyway, no, that's, yeah. it, it's, it's, you know, it kind of is, uh, in a way kind of emblematic of, I guess, like a college slash frat culture kind of thing in some workplaces. Yeah. That's what it feels like to me. And I don't want to work in a place like that. Like I want to work in a place where no. we're getting work done, not, you know, sitting around playing beer pong between meetings. That's, that's no. Nah. Yeah. I mean, I'm okay if like you have a break room and, you know, after a break or during a brainstorming session, you're like throwing a ball around the room or something like that just to, but, and I'm okay with an occasional happy hour at, at the office, but I view it more as if we're going to do a happy hour, do it as a reward. Cause we've finished some big project and, you know, it's kind of like a celebration of, Hey, we got this done more than a. Let's have beer every Friday. Yeah. You know, it's starting at noon. 
Yeah. You know, that to me is just, no, you're trying to hide something. Right. Maybe that's the cynic in me, but it's, I've just seen it so many times where it's been, you, where it's been, like you said, used as a filter to kind of gloss over the problems that are underlying. Well, actually, you know, that's interesting. I didn't even think of applying it in that way. I was thinking more so like those kinds of places can be a filter to keep people out. Oh, yeah. I wasn't even thinking of a filter being something that covers up a, a larger problem. But, yeah, it does that, too. It absolutely does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with with you thinking about new things and all, is there like one specific thing that jumps out at you as either the most important or the biggest red flag? Um, I, you know, the main thing that I'm thinking of is like, what type of work do I want to do? Because I can, I can do a lot of different things. I know my, my career has mostly been around design, but within these past two and a half years, I've been fortunate to do a lot of media work, a lot of creative strategy work. And I really like that a lot. I find it, I find both of them to be an interesting abstraction of the skills that I already possess. Uh, Because I mean, for for nine years, I ran my own design studio and, you know, dealing Mm. with clients and writing proposals and all that sort of stuff. Like, I don't necessarily want to go back to doing all of that. Uh, What these past sort of two and a half to three years have shown me is how much I really like telling a good story. Mm. Um, I'm fortunate to be able to do that. One with Revision Paths, just to give those people the platform to tell their story. But I also feel like there are so many other really great stories out there that need to be told that just have not even been like looked at touched at all. Um, and largely mm-hmm. I feel like that could be done via audio. Cause I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen mm-hmm. to a lot of like limited series podcasts, which are probably my favorite type of podcast. Like something that's a good tight 10 episodes or less. I love yeah, that. I've been getting more into those. Yeah. Like it, you get in, you get the story, you get out. It's great. Um, yeah, there's stories I would love to tell about the early web and the people that I knew from back then. And even just like the stories of things that happened back then that I would love to really go into and, um, and tell in some sort of way to a larger audience. So Mm -hmm. that's something I'm really interested in. Um, and the strategy work I find fun because, you know, when I was doing this with glitch, I was really like, uh, I kind of functioned in a way like a creative expert inside of the company. So I was able to Mm -hmm. give them suggestions on, you know, things that we can do with with clients or things that we can do with partners or, you know, even campaigns that we're trying to do. Here's a fun way that we could do it that maybe we didn't consider it before. And then I'm able to kind of use the breadth of experience that I have, you know, from A, talking to people, B, consuming media, C, making media, and D, just my general design experience to kind of, you know, impart that upon a company or upon a um, an individual to have them do greater things. So mm-hmm. the, when I think about what my next step is, I feel like it's either going to be more down the strategy road um, or mm-hmm. more down the media road. Probably more so media because, like, that's what really excites me right now. Sure. Uh, that's kind of where that's kind of where I'm at. I can see that. I'd I'd be very interested to see you do like a limited run series, especially surrounding those conversations around the early web and stuff. That'd be 
I think those would be fun conversations to have. And, you know, there's, there's so many different approaches you can take with those conversations too, where it's, it doesn't have to be, you know, like revision path or, or like this show where it's, you know, a conversation, just a straight conversation with somebody you can, you can really mold and shape that story to hit different points in, in different ways. Yeah. There was this, uh, and, and the, the reason I'm really thinking about the early web one is just because I was around back then, but, uh, <laughs> but in, in, so was yeah, I. <laughs> but like in 2019, I saw this really great, uh, mini series that national geographic did called Valley of the boom. Have you heard of this? No, I haven't. So Valley of the Boom was this mini series that talked about the uh, the browser wars. Mm-hmm. And it was so good because it was a mix of documentary footage. Like they mm-hmm. actually talked to, you know, like Mark Andreessen and, and all those people from back then. Uh, but mm-hmm. then they also had this kind of like stylized, almost like a sitcom portion that had them acting it out from in the 90s. I don't know if that sure. makes any sense, but it was really... No, it does. It does. Yeah, yeah, it was so, so, so good. Because I remember that time, like the whole Netscape Navigator versus AOL, um, uh-huh. the globe.com. I mean... Oh, God, I'd forgotten about that one. <laughs> when Microsoft bundled like Internet Explorer with every PC and how that like rocked the world. I was in high school when yep. that happened. Like, yep. that's... That was such like just watching that made me remember how I fell in love with the internet and fell in love with the web. Um, not necessarily the like slimy litigious parts of it, but just like no, the unfettered just, yeah. discovery, the the newness the of everything. Of yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah, because I mean, it was it was kind of the ah, what's it was the wild, wild west of what you could discover. It was anything was out there. I mean, it in a lot of ways, it still is that. But it was much more you to to not be punny, but you you really had to be an Internet Explorer. Yeah. No, you did. To discover what you wanted. Nowadays, you know, you've got Google and, and Bing and all those search engines that they've built their algorithms up so much that it doesn't take much to find what you're looking for. But back then in, you know, mid nineties, it was, it was a lot of work yeah, to find stuff. It, it really was because there wasn't that level of, of sort of discovery. And I mean, we see some stories about early web properties, um, probably Facebook more than anything. Um, yeah. But even that is sort of told through like this very, kind of a subjective lens, you know, like Aaron Sorkin, I think it's definitely rose colored social- glasses. Yeah. Like Aaron Sorkin, I think is who did the, the social network. Um, so. like you watch the movie. It's a, it's an okay movie, but like, it's definitely yeah. through a certain, a certain kind of lens. But, uh, mm-hmm. what, what I, what got me to thinking about sort of wanting to tell the stories of the early web from watching Valley of the boom is that it was very multicultural back then. Like they had designers and engineers of, all stripes working on it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's gotten lost in time as you start to see so like who is succeeding on the web, who is building on the web. Well, I wouldn't even necessarily say who's building on the web, but who is getting the attention for building on the web. Um, mm-hmm. It's largely fallen out of the view of people of color, particularly for black people. But like mm-hmm. we were there and we were 
working and building and innovating and creating in the same, like running in the same lanes. Uh, mm-hmm. But you don't, you don't see those stories. People don't know about the early days of urban box office or black web 2.0 or, you know, AOL black voices or anything like that. And those were for me, I know those were super instrumental to me finding and feeling what my place was on the web. Mm-hmm. Um, you just don't hear those stories anymore. Like things get absorbed, things get forgot. I mean, try to find something on the web from 10 years ago. Maybe it's in the internet <laughs> okay. archive. If you're lucky, yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> you know, was it archive or it's, or yeah. it's in some, on some newspapers archive that you've got to pay God knows how much to access. Like it's ridiculous mm-hmm. to even try to find that stuff. Find stuff. I can't even find stuff from two years ago half the time. <laughs> and so those stories end up getting, you know, lost or locked away or like completely forgotten. Um, mm-hmm. Well, what what uh, also struck me just recently um, on the cover of Wired, they had this hacker. What was the hacker guy that was on the cover of Wired? Uh, his name was Marcus something. It was for the WannaCry that virus. That was all I could remember. I, I, yeah, I remember. I remember it. I just said the Marcus was where I you lost after that. I was like, Oh yeah. So, yeah. I know what you're talking about. And like, I was I have see- that one sitting around. I haven't read it yet. Yeah. And like, <laughs> I was seeing that and I was seeing people saying like, Oh, this is the first time that, you know, they've had a black hacker on the cover mm-hmm. of wire magazine. And I'm like, no, it's not. Do, do people not remember the great hacker wars of like the early nineties and how yeah. John threat was on the cover in 94. People don't know that. Probably not. No. And yeah. John's still around. I didn't know, John, I didn't know that. John's yeah. still around doing his thing. You know, mm-hmm. like I would love to tell that story. So yeah. it's that kind of stuff that gets me interested. Cause I mean, sort of going back to what I'm saying before about like oral history, like that's what these, these stories end up becoming, you know, people, people won't know what their place was in history if they don't have a chance to hear it or see it yeah. in some kind of way. So like yeah. when people say, oh, you know, there's so many slavery movies. Yeah, there's a lot of slavery movies. But what if there were no slavery movies? Yeah. <laughs> you know, or if there were only a handful, but not told from our perspective. Like, yeah. How does that change? How does that change how people see us? You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, definitely. It, and I, I think, you know, you, you've got to speak truth to power when it comes to that stuff. It's, you know, it's not all sunshine and roses. There are, there's, there's things that have gone on behind the scenes that are horrible that you've, for lack of a better word, again, you've got to speak truth to power with that. And I think that's an excellent way to do that. Right. Or there's things that have happened that people like just don't even know about. Like I remember, I remember when, uh, you know, movable type was the hot shit on the web. Like everybody was using it. They, people knew Ben and Mina and Anil and the work that they were doing. And then they yeah. came out with movable type 3.0 with that pricing uh-huh. model. And people switched to WordPress overnight. Like, oh, I'm yep. out of here. Like just that quickly. Just that quickly yep. the tide turned. I I had almost forgotten about movable type. And that's why I was <laughs> laughing when you mentioned it. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Because, you know, content management yeah. systems, you know, like WordPress kind of rules the roost now. They they power, yeah. I think, over a third of the web or, or close to a third of the web. Like that's yeah. not by by happenstance. But how did it nope. get there? 
And like, I feel like that was a big point in making that happen was that big mm. switch, especially for bloggers, that big switch over from movable type to WordPress. Like mm-hmm. I would, I would love to see, to tell that story and I have access to the people. So like, you know, <laughs> I would love to be able to, to have the space. And I'm the, not saying and the, you should do that, but you should totally do <laughs> I, uh, you know, I'd love to have the, the, the space and the, the resources to be able to, to pull that off. Cause I think it would be great. And I mean, like, and also the idea kind of further crystallized for me when I, uh, back when I was working at glitch, I was for the first season of function with the Neil dash, which is a Neil's podcast. I was the, yeah. I was the EP on his show and we did an episode okay. called social media 20 years ago. And we talked to the founder of Open Diary. We talked to the founder of Diaryland. We talked to a software engineer, like an early software engineer for LiveJournal. And, you know, mm-hmm. them talking about what the web was God, like. I've forgotten about LiveJournal too. Yeah, but like talking about what the web was like then versus what it's like now and how what they did 20 years ago has like set the scene for now. Mm-hmm. You know, like they talked, like I think one of the things they mentioned was like the big, huge catfish story around JT Leroy. JT Leroy I vaguely was, remember that. JT Leroy was like a a like a blogger, but like they came from like this really troubled past and everything and got really popular. Mm-hmm. And then it came to find out it was just like some fictional creation of a right. Yeah, right. it was a yeah. whole there's a documentary out actually about I think it came out a few years ago about JT Leroy. Hmm. I'll have to look that But up. like who would know that story unless you were there during that yeah. time? So yeah. Yeah, no, I think those I mean Especially with the speed that technology moves at, yeah, I think I think those could be really good stories to tell and really fun stories to tell, and and I think compelling too. And I, I mean that's what you've got to have is a compelling story, and I think I think there's a lot of argument that could be made for a compelling story with those. Yeah, so that's kind of what I like. You know, we're talking. If I had the time and the resources, like if I could wave a magic wand, like that's mm-hmm. what I want to go into next is focusing on on trying to tell those stories. So like doing something maybe similar to uh, like Slow Burn, how they, they sort of tackle a different uh, case or a different um, mm-hmm. sort of incident every season. I would I mm-hmm. would love to do that. So that's kind of where my mind is right now. That'd be neat. Other other than that, what are you what are you looking forward to in in the future? What are you trying to figure out? I'm looking forward to leaving the house without a mask. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like like right yeah. around this time is yeah. when I would be thinking vacations, and I'm like, where where would I go? I mean, we technically could travel. Like planes are still flying. Hotels yeah. are still around, but it's just not the best idea to yeah, do. Yeah. Um, I would love to take a, like a proper vacation right now. That's for sure. <laughs> I, I, think, I think all of us would. <laughs> uh, it, it feels so, it feels so awkward to even think about that now too. Yeah. Um, I, you know, that's kind of really, I mean, aside from the audio stuff, i that's really all that I'm thinking about these days is like, what is life going to look like on the other side of this? Cause everything has changed. Mm-hmm. Everything will continue to change so quickly. And 
you know, I tend to be a futurist. I tend to kind of always look ahead and see what's coming next. And I don't think anyone really knows what's coming next because the circumstances no, yeah. and, and everything around all of this changes so frequently that you just have to try to stay abreast of what's happening when you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's hard yeah. to say like what I'm looking forward to because I, I had so many plans for this year. Like we did a live show uh, for Revision Path in L.A., in uh, mm-hmm. February and I had plans to do um, other live shows in conjunction with AIGA chapters around the country. So mm-hmm. I was thinking of doing one in Seattle and in Kansas city and Chicago and Houston and New York and DC. And then everything got canceled. Like my whole year of plans have been like the slate is clean. So yeah. one of the things that I'm doing just during this time is trying to revisit those plans and mm-hmm. see what I can salvage from them. Like, yeah, I could hop on a Zoom call and do some of these things, but I'm Zoomed out. I really don't. If, unless I really have to, like, I'm not. I don't want to do it. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's tough. And setting up like a live Zoom conference, for lack of a better term, like where you would be doing a live broadcast of the show or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. For me, that just feels awkward. I mean, if it feels awkward, I don't necessarily, you know, even like I did it for like when I was at work and we had to do, you know, video calls and stuff. I don't mind that. But like, well, that, you know, that's different. Though. But like my apartment's not a studio, you know, no, and I don't yeah. want to treat my apartment like that either. I mean, one of the benefits that I have had, of you know, kind of doing this job or the job that I had before remotely was I could sort of separate like this is work. This is not work. And now mm-hmm. because everyone's at home, the place where they work is also now their gym and their school. And, you know, like it's all these other things, yeah. you know, it's harder to kind of make that separation. And so I don't necessarily always want to do video stuff all the time because I just don't feel mm-hmm. like it. That's that's the honest yeah. truth. Like people have asked, oh, why don't why haven't you done? Because I was going to do a speaker series this year uh, with Museum of Design mm-hmm. Atlanta and then, you know, the lockdowns happened and I'm like, eh, I don't want to, I, I think we should push this off till next year. And they came back mm-hmm. and, you know, they were really like, oh, um, well, we could do, you know, a series of live shows and this, that, and the other on Zoom. And I'm like, no, I'll wait till we can meet again in person. Yeah. Partially because I just know from doing live shows with the Vision Path that the the ability to have that physical communal space is so important for the people that attend because they're not able mm-hmm. to really be in close proximity with other folks that look like them that do what they do. So that's why mm-hmm. I'm, you know, kind of a stickler for having the physical space. And while we are nowhere well, yeah, near I you mean, know, getting back to there's that. There's also an energy that comes from having a live audience too that you don't get Yeah. With that's true. Zoom. That's yeah. that's very true. Um unless you like really know how to play to the camera and everything you really kind of don't know how people are going to react plus you know yeah you can't see people's faces or what have you can't get their energy you can't really gauge you know how things are going like even when i've done webinars maybe i'm just not a a video webinar person because even when i did them in the past with my studio i was like this Mm -hmm. is this is dumb i don't (laughs) want to do this i I, I think i'm the same way i don't uh, i mean i i will listen to a video webinar of something yeah but if I've got to be on camera for a video webinar, I don't like it. Yeah. It's not, it's not my thing. Yeah. Now, I mean, I have these calls, you know, most of the time 
I've got a video connection with the person. But that's just so we can have a one-on-one conversation, mm-hmm. you know, face-to-face. And that, that's a little different. But when it's, you know, a one-on-one conversation in front of a silent audience, that's weird. Yeah. It's very weird. Um, and so I haven't done any of those sort of like live things. Although I do have one coming up that I'm doing with San Francisco design week on Friday. Uh, and it'll be the, it'll be my first sort of, I guess, conference talk in a while. Mm-hmm. I, I used mm-hmm. to really shy away from conferences largely because conference organizers are terrible when it comes to hotels and airfare and <laughs> logistics. And I'm just like, I just want to avoid all of that if I can, if I can just give my talk, that's great. And so with this, I'll be able to give my talk, you know, from the comfort of my own Having been on that side of conferences, I can agree. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, so that'll be my first like sort of conference talk that I've done in a while. Largely before Mm -hmm. that I was speaking at schools and, you know, universities, et cetera, mostly because I feel like they need to hear it the most. I don't necessarily know if a, uh, a cadre of well-paid professionals need to hear me spout from a podium for 40 minutes because their job probably paid them to be there in the first place. And if that's the case, then they're <laughs> most likely treating this like spring break. Um, cause I know that's well, what I, that's cause why I know I like that's what I would do. Conferences. <laughs> well, yes. so th- that's why I like smaller conferences is cause it's, it's generally not people whose work has paid for them to be there. Right. Where it's that lower price level and it's affordable. It's, it's generally a better mix. It's people who have paid for themselves to be there and freelancers and stuff like that. I mean, you do get people whose work is paid for them to be there, but it's, they're not viewing it as like you said, spring break. Yeah. And they also tend to feel a lot more um, just intimate and familial. Whereas Mm -hmm. some of those larger multi-day conferences, it's like a slog after like day three. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) It's like, and I'm, I'm, I'm an ambivert, but when I get around designers and all, I'm fairly extroverted, but at a certain point I just reach a, nope, I need me time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, as we're kind of wrapping things up here, I got a few rapid fire questions to get to the feasting part. Sure. And, um, you know, since, since your studio was called lunch, um, and it's lunchtime, um, let, let's talk about some food. All right. So what is kind of like, and, and these are easy. It's generally the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, the only rule is you can't pick the same answer for the, any of the questions. All right. So what is kind of like your earliest food memory? Ooh, my earliest food memory is probably... Um, not as a baby, but certainly as like a toddler eating mm. spaghetti. It's probably my <laughs> earliest food memory. Yeah. Yeah. What was it about? Why is it? Why is spaghetti stick out in your mind? Uh, my mom says that was my first word or one of my first words. Oh. So it, it sticks out. It's a big word to pick. Yeah. <laughs> Most kids start off with mom. And, it, and it wasn't, it wasn't the, you know, paschetti thing. It was like spaghetti. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> one of those ones where she's calling up uh, her folks and saying he's advanced for his age yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay 
Um, what's kind of your go-to comfort food? You've just had a crap day and you need to just veg out in front of the TV and snack on something. Oh God, it's so bad, but it's so easy. It's so easy to make. It's sort of like this meatball tortellini kind of dish, which sounds, it sounds complicated. I'm telling you, it comes Uh together in like 20 minutes. It's so simple. So I will get a bag of frozen meatballs. Mm-hmm. A bag of frozen cheese tortellini mm-hmm. and a jar of pasta sauce. Um, mm-hmm. Dump all these ingredients in a in a you know like a fairly large size saucepan. Yeah, with the the empty pasta jar, fill that with about a cup of hot water. It could be just mm-hmm. like hot water straight from the tap. Uh, if you want to be really fancy, you can use chicken stock, but you don't have to. Um, and then dump that in also. And then just like set it to come to a simmer for about 20 minutes. And like oh, so everything cooks the, the meatballs are go? done. The sauce warms up the tortellini and it's so good. It makes amazing leftovers because it all just sort of like comes together. And you can add in mm. cheese if you want to, you know, basil, seasonings, etc. Uh, but it's get fancy. Yeah. It's so it's something I can just like go to the freezer, dump, dump, put everything in. And I've got dinner ready or, a, or I wouldn't necessarily even call that a snack, but like that's comfort yeah. food. Cause it's, it's something that I sort of, uh, I guess stumbled upon in college mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's still something that I'll eat today. Like it's just so easy to, to put together. And I know that it's a filling meal. I'll have leftovers for a few days. Um, it's great. Doesn't sound bad to me. <laughs> I'd have to actually try that. <laughs> So the the ease factor with it out without it sounding just like crappy. Yeah, like there's no recipe. Like is, there's no is, you're not chopping yeah. anything. You're literally just dumping everything into a pot and warming it through. Yeah, it, it's not like. Do you guys have Mama Goldbergs in Atlanta? Um, I don't know if we do or not. We might. So it's it's a sandwich place. They started off in Auburn, Alabama, um, but they have what I. They, they call them nachos. I call them stoner nachos <laughs> because they literally, they take Doritos. Oh my God. Pepper Jack cheese and put pepper Jack cheese on top of them. Oh wow. And it is like so terrible, but so good at the same time. <laughs> I'm looking it up now. We do have a, oh no, we used to have a Mama Goldberg's. It's closed. Uh, that stinks. <laughs> but I, they got pretty good sandwiches too, yeah. but the stoner nachos are, are where it's at. Mm. So, and then finally, what's your death row meal? That last meal you can ever eat. Ooh, death row meal. I mean, hopefully you're never on death row. No, no. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> probably. Oh man. Um, and it's really good too. Um, I don't know if it has a name, but so there's a restaurant here in Atlanta called salary man. It's a Japanese restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's, it's a Japanese, but they also serve Korean food too, but they make mm-hmm. this, it's almost like street fries. They'll have like mm-hmm. really good crispy fries. And then on top of it, they'll put, um, like Korean barbecue, kimchi, cheese, um, scallions. And so it's like, it's sweet, it's sour, it's savory, it's hot, it's oh, cold. It sounds delicious. Um, it's like probably the perfect hangover food, probably perfect drunk food too. Um, cause it's, <laughs> it was about to say, you just, just shovel it. In. I mean, it's so good. I mean, I could probably make it at home, but I won't try to, 
because of just you know yeah, the intricacy then you gotta of the bring kimchi then you gotta bring kimchi into your house and that uh that can cause problems well it's not even so much the kimchi is is getting the korean barbecue right like the the well, meat yeah, has to be true. the right texture and because it's almost like a like a shredded like a uh carne asada almost but mm-hmm. um yeah, that would probably be my death row meal. I know there's probably like a, a unique name for it, but I have no idea what it is. But it's so good. It sounds delicious. I'm going to have to. I've, I've heard of Salary Man. I've never been there, but I've heard of it. Yeah. So I'm going to have to give that a try. Somebody I talked to recently was. Yeah, it's sort of like. It's, I can't it's remember. A, it's, they just went there. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's like um, it's like poutine. Yeah. But there's like uh, what goes over because I'm looking it up now. It's a. Uh, they call it poutine with kalbi jim, which is like Korean beef stew, but it's uh, yeah. like the shredded beef and the kimchi and the cheese and everything. It's really good. That does sound good. I'm going to have to, uh, next time I'm in Atlanta, I'm going to have to go look them up and give that a try. Yeah. I'm sure my wife will love me for making her stop somewhere <laughs> along the way. Just to, I don't know. That actually sounds like something she'd really like too. So, but. Well, cool. Maurice, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me um, and and the, the deep dives into politics and all that. Yeah, stuff. we kind of kind of ran the gamut. <laughs> yeah, we really did. It was it was good catching up with you and uh, go out and break some bread. Oh, real quickly, before I forget, yeah. where can people find you online? Oh, so I'm uh, at .com, Uh So you'll find links to me there where I'm on LinkedIn just search for Maurice Cherry. I'm on Twitter at Maurice Cherry. I'm on Tumblr. I, I still kind of somewhat update my Tumblr blog at least once a week. And that's blog.mauricecherry.com. And then, of mm -hmm. course, Revision Path is at revisionpath.com. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram under the same name, as well as in the mm -hmm. Smithsonian. So, <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. So that's, where, that's where people can find me. <laughs> That's that's a big one. Oh, and congratulations on the uh, AIGA award too. Oh my, was that? that was, oh my goodness, that was that was that was years after ago. We oh wow, yeah, I forgot all about that. Thank you. That was yeah. Damn, you're welcome. That was two years ago. Wow, wow, time flies. I forgot all about <laughs> the Stephen Heller Award for uh, for cultural commentary. Stephen Heller Prize for cultural yeah. commentary. Yeah, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. I. Uh, I'm I'm still trying to get Stephen Heller on my podcast, so he's he's one of my uh, bucket list guests. Have you have you reached out to him? I have. Yeah, it's just been a matter of scheduling. Yeah, they. Um, I'm trying to get his wife Louise as well. Oh, okay. On the podcast, but they are moving out to the country currently, so they don't know what their internet situation is going to be like. Ah, makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So. When they get that settled, they're supposed to get back with me. Yeah. If so. you get a chance to talk to him, tell him I said hello. I will. I definitely will. All right. Well, again, thank you so much. It was great talking to you. And, and like I said, go out and break some bread. All right. Thanks. Special thanks to Roasters Marketplace for sponsoring this episode of Feasting on Design. Be sure to visit them and pick up some delicious coffee from one of their 29 micro roasters. You can find them at roastersmarketplace.com or on social media. Use the code FEAST for free shipping on your first order. You can find out more about Maurice on Twitter at Maurice Cherry. And be sure to check out the links in the show notes for more ways to keep up with him.
I hope you like this episode of Feasting on Design. Let me know what you think of it. And if you like it, leave me a review over on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can keep up with the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Feast on Design. And I'm at Jay Frostholm on Dribble, Twitter, and Instagram. Or over at my website, illdesign.com.